1: Some of you may not be familiar with how this podcast works. It's all just like an exercise in whether I can listen to women one at a time. That's the whole premise. We're almost three years into this. And I don't pick superstars. I'm not talking to Taylor Swift or Beyonce, although I would. I absolutely would. Hey, call me. You know, DM me. Be happy to talk to you who I usually talk to are the people who are your friends and neighbors. And there's this great myth that they don't have an amazing story, which they do. And this week's guest absolutely proves that. Now I do this professionally also in my company which is called Voice Locket in which I listen to your story. It's the height of presumption to think I can tell your story. That's just arrogant. That's the kind of things reporters do is they tell you what your story is, especially a man explaining to a woman what her story is. That's just offensive. So if you're interested in VoiceLocket, VoiceLocket.com, checks out if I can help you out with any of that with friends or B2B. Uh, telling the story of your business, just finished one, very powerful, well-received. The marketing director at this company said she was, quote, ecstatic, her word, not mine, ecstatic with my work. Um, so check it out, Voice Voicelocket.com. Um, Today's guest, my kids, my youngest two, they're not kids, they're 25 and 27, they're over in Durham, North Carolina with the rest of the hipsters. And uh, one is a millennial, and one is a G- Gen Z, Gen Z, a Zoomer, uh, and they play volleyball at this like pub, and with sort of pickup teams, get, get remarkably competitive. And because they're in Durham, near Duke, they play volleyball with some really smart people including this week's guest, whose name is Diana Lee. And she told my kids when she heard about the podcast, I'd, I'd do that, I'd do that podcast. And unfortunately, I did it on Zoom. I, liked to, I had planned to go over to Durham, but I had a couple of cancellations. So sorry, did it on Zoom. But she is just fascinating. We talked for an hour and a half. She is a PhD in you know, everybody talks about nutrition and the human body and biohacks and diets. It's the time of the year for diets. Yes, yes, yes. All the craziness. She is a genuine, bona fide PhD, doctorly expert. And so we do a deep dive into a whole bunch of myths about how you eat. So I think you're gonna get a ton out of hearing the story of Dr. Diana Lee.
2: I truly believe that we just need to come at people with kindness and to not let our own frustrations over a certain situation prevent us from being calm ourselves.
0: This is In Her Words a podcast from manlisting.com, featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In Her Words, a conversation worth hearing, because every woman deserves to be heard.
1: Hey there, hi there, and welcome to this week's edition of In Her Words, the podcast. I kind of told you everything you need to know, uh, except that there is one, because we cut an hour and a half worth of tape into half that, there is one hard turn from uh, from sort of xenophobia and racism, a hard turn into talking about fat and your diet and everything. So just, just know that going in, okay, sometimes in making these cuts, of big chunks of audio, there is just all of a sudden a record scratch, what was that, um, knowing that, I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. It really moves along. Diana Lee, PhD.
2: Where were you born? Poughkeepsie, New York.
1: That's, do you call that upstate?
2: Mm, I think so. It's definitely not
1: the city. So why are you moving back to upstate New York?
2: Very exciting. Um, I am taking a job in industry um, and I'll be a scientist doing research and development. Um, and this has been my long-term goal since I was in my end stages of getting my PhD. So currently I'm a postdoc at Duke right now. I do research in the school of medicine and gastroenterology. And, um, I really wanted to like branch out, try some new science, try a different field, um, get kind of, uh, work, work my network in like the medical field. Cause like translational medicine is a different ball game from what I'm used to. And I kind of wanted to work associated with a, like a hospital with medical research, clinical research. Um, so anyways, but, but I did know that ever since I was finishing up my PhD, that I wanted to go, uh, into a company to work long-term. And so, um, a series of things have happened during my postdoc, including COVID and like lots of things to make me reevaluate where I want to be. Um, being closer to family is one of my priorities. And so, um, yeah, I'm moving in, I'm moving in two weeks to go back up.
1: What did COVID look like for you? Because it meant different things for different people. So what were those bunch of things that happened?
2: Um. Well, I, I think it just really made me reevaluate, um, what's important because it almost felt like so much was stripped away that you, at least for me, I reflected a lot on like who I was as a person, what I want to do, what I want, what I want my life to look like. And, um, just made me reprioritize in that, that time that we kind of spent isolated Um, On a more personal note, I was in a very long relationship of like almost nine years that ended during like, I think it was a year into COVID or something like that. So that was a huge event that kind of also accelerated my personal growth. Um, And so that like figuring out my priorities for my career, what I want to do, who I am, Um, what I want my life to look like as like a single person for the first time in almost a decade was really big for me. Um, So those, yeah, those were, it was a, it was a very um, like emotionally packed past three years, I would say. So.
1: Who did you decide you are?
2: I think the term that that's used these days is a baddie. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
1: so uh, is that like a badass I,
2: yeah i think so um, i can
1: i could see that
2: <laughs> um someone who uh has a really good head on their shoulders um i think i i doubted myself a lot and was really anxious to try new things like i mentioned before and i've kind of gotten over that um and mostly i just have this like renewed thirst for life or you know i just want to experience things i want I want to like live my life instead of like plan my life, you know, a healthy dose of planning as well. I'm responsible. I'm very responsible, but like, you know, I just, there's all these different things that I feel like I was, it wasn't even on my radar to do. And I've just like, um, like um, playing volleyball and like (laughs) (laughs) I, for years it was like, you know, I really want to get back into volleyball. I miss it. You know, I used to play in high school and then I took a break when I was doing schooling for like eight years. And um, yeah, I think I I I was really nervous to like go out and meet people and like do things by myself. And um, in the past few years, I've really just gotten over it. And I have this like wonder, I will miss this group dearly. Um, the volleyball group that's in Durham. but, like I just slowly met some people here and there and have just kind of reincorporated volleyball back into my life, um taking trips. I did a lot of traveling when restrictions opened up um, to visit some of my best friends across the country.
1: but but on the career side, you used some words that i I don't have any thought bubble to what it what they are. Clinical research. I, I have no idea what your day looks like, mm-hmm. what where it fits into the bigger picture and why you find such passion for this.
2: So uh currently at Duke, I've been working on this really cool gut brain project where we look at the vagus nerve, which is kind of one of those clickbaity words in these articles lately um, on intestinal function. And the lab I work in now, um focuses on stem cell biology. So the the project, I'm, I'm actually transitioning it to um, other members as I leave, but um, it's been very exciting to work in that field. I'm very uh, grateful for the opportunity that I've had to do this research at Duke. Duke is a great place to do research. It's been wonderful working there. Um, and so I got to know a little bit about um, the the field of neurogastroenterology, which is a really fancy way of saying like the gut brain field,
1: but it it I can appreciate the pragmatism that you can with your own eyes see how this can really help human beings, like mm-hmm. large numbers of human beings, um, live yes. healthier lives and happier lives.
2: Yeah, I so the your like question about like translational medicine and clinical medicine and research. I think this is kind of what I was getting at too. Like, I felt like the, the research that I was doing as a PhD student in cardiovascular disease was very basic science, um, and I wasn't getting a lot of. Um, it was hard to find like the end game of uh, how is this ever going to help someone down the line. And I would say in terms of like academic research in general, that definitely serves a purpose. Don't get me wrong. Um, But it is very basic. Like let us ask very basic questions to try and figure out what the biology is. Um, And one thing that I really have appreciated about being at Duke and working closely with the the school of medicine is having this perspective of, um, you know, what's going on in the clinics? What are the, the, patients dealing with on a day-to-day basis and how can we tailor our research to be more applicable to serve the patient population and um, ultimately I my interest in that is is what made me decide to pursue a end career goal in big pharma research because I think that the the goal and like the the big aim for pharma research is to serve you know patients and and sometimes in academic research it can that can get lost in the weeds a little bit Um, and I think one thing that I'd like to say especially on this platform is that there's there's been this conversation for years and years and years in academic science about um, the cons of going to the the dark side which is big pharma because I think that many people think the quality of research is um, less than academic and in my career exploration and development over the past few years, it's, I found that that's totally a myth. Um, The quality of research is extremely high and rigorous at industry, in industry and people ask creative questions and a lot of great scientists work there. And I think um, coming to this point in my life and career, you know, things have changed a bit since, you know, the, a generation ahead of me. So like my boss and that generation definitely grew up and came to be scientists in a time where it was like frowned upon to work for a company. Um, now I think it is a little bit better. And I think the generation after this is even going to be more accepting, but there is a stigma in research, um, I think, for you know people who want to pursue jobs in, in different companies as opposed to staying within these academic institutions. It's very interesting.
1: Dumb question, really yeah. blunt question. Things that you hear on television or in popular culture parroted about science, which make your head want to explode.
2: Anything to do with like a health hack? I feel um that there are these, and this might be biased or a certain gender, but like biohacker men that really just drive me crazy. <laughs> like,
1: <laughs> like what's a biohack that would drive you crazy?
2: Um, people, the wellness industry in general just drives me nuts. So like, um, people proposing certain diets that are like, um, the, the recent one is that like, that like plants have a lot of poison. And so you shouldn't eat vegetables because they have no defense mechanisms on like animals. So they produce toxins. So then if you eat vegetables, they're actually toxic for you. And then people are like, I eat steak for five meals a day. (laughs) (laughs)
1: i thought we had gotten (laughs) oh my god i thought we had gotten over that
2: no it's just i mean they're i understand like when i hear these things i get a mix of emotions right so like not everyone i'm privileged not everyone has a degree in biochemistry and a phd in nutritional sciences and understands how the intestine works right like and biology in general. So, yes, I'm I'm very qualified to be the person like judging these things, but that's like I I don't know if this statistic is true or not. We can look it up, but like PhDs are like 1% of the population. So, again, my perspective is rare, I think. Um, but the wellness why industry- do su- <laughs> Why do you think men
1: are, why do you think men, now we're getting to it. Why do you think men are sort of susceptible to this, Diana?
2: Um, that's a great question. And I don't know how qualified I am to answer this, but I do think that men, society holds men in like a, the same standards for women, you know, like the tes- your testosterone levels have to be high um you've got to have very low body fat like you've got to be cut and hair loss like all of these things and I think that like the same issues that affect men and women and anyone else out there like for these whatever social standards beauty standards are um yeah I think that's that's just people's egos telling them that they 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 should be better and you know, wanting some magic pill or some diet trend to to take care of that for them.
1: What changed about the way you ate over the course, the more you learn, master's, PhD, postdoc?
2: Nothing, nothing. Nothing? Really? <laughs> so, so what,
1: okay, what's for dinner, Diana?
2: What I learned, I'll tell you what's for dinner. What I learned uh, is that it's almost impossible to change people's dietary preferences that is what i learned in my phd in nutrition it's extremely difficult i i'm also not an expert in this i listen to a lot of podcasts about science but there are these theories i think that like your food and taste preferences are established at a very young age and they're set and as you go through life it's near impossible to change what you like to eat um personally my i am very Happy and blessed and grateful that I grew up eating whole whole meal foods. Um my parents cook a lot. We are in an immigrant family and
1: immigrated from China. What and
2: part? So, um very close to Beijing.
1: Uh both sides, mother we, and father?
2: Yes, they grew up close to each other. So
1: were they in the city towns. or out in the
2: I think they were technically close to the city, but also when they were growing up, there really wasn't a city there um my family does not come from affluence by any means and this is part of the reason why like home-cooked meals are such a big deal um culturally and also economically it was just more frugal so
1: i gotta ask when you go home what does your mother make i'm assuming it's your mother i'm being sexist
2: both parents cook.
1: okay what do mom and dad make that you're like I can't touch this. I so miss what?
2: I honestly, the simplicity of the meals, like any kind of rice with a stir fried vegetable will make dumplings. I requested that we make um, roasted duck for Christmas because I miss that a lot. Um, but that's like a special item thing. Um, any kind of noodles. If I go home, it's usually for some kind of some event event. Because uh, I do live in Durham right now, and I lived in Connecticut before this. And like birthdays, it's like noodles, you know, longevity noodles. Um,
1: and what's different about their noodles from what you would get in a restaurant?
2: Um, it's really hard to get authentic Chinese food in the states, I think. And so um, everything is—I think everything is different. It's just the the taste of it, and also there is a nostalgia part of that. You know, like I grew up eating these foods, and it's just never going to taste the same with a a restaurant spin on it
1: what do they include or how do they prepare it that makes it authentic that makes it very different than a quote-unquote chinese restaurant you'd have in the states
2: um maybe just like proportions of uh so like cornstarch is usually used as a thickener to make like sauces and things and kind of give it like a more palatable mouthfeel to it um sometimes i, d- I don't trust like doubling filling meat and even at home my parents usually grind their own meat and i do the same thing too i'll buy one piece of like pork shoulder grind it myself um maybe it's just like quality of ingredients and um, level of salt i think um and
1: monosodium glutamate is that in and this
2: msg is really not that bad for you uh that's a little bit been a little bit de- take. take it's been debunked um but no my parents don't really cook with msg i actually just have some because i cook things that i like to put msg in things but no it's not really at home um i don't what know a, what
1: about the villainizing of certain things like for, for that matter red meat um, yeah
2: Okay. So yeah, to go back to that. So my dietary rules for myself, um, try to try to make your own meals as much as you can. You can control the ingredients and you can cut out a lot of different preservatives and things like that. Um, just whole like whole foods is, is how I um, would describe my diet. But I also like to tinker around in the kitchen. So that ends up translating to like, I brew my own kombucha. I do my own sourdough ferments I have my own sourdough bread so I rarely buy processed bread um so you made, grew
1: your starter
2: it was gifted to me
1: actually and how from long my, have you kept it
2: this starter was given to me in my second year of grad school and I've had it since then um I've had it for probably seven years plus now how
1: do you keep it alive
2: um, it's just chilling in my fridge right now. And every few weeks when I remember I'll feed it. If I'm taking, sometimes I go on hiatus from bread baking. Um, it's really easy to keep alive. And I've given this, it's, it's actually a great story. I'm very, I love food. I love food culture. I've given out the starter to many different people. Um, and it's kind of spread. It's what, like in North Carolina, there's a community of people with my starter now. And, and in Connecticut and New York, where I've lived before there's a group of people with my starter now too and it was given to me so it's very special <laughs> the kombucha who, starter the scoby that I have is also gifted to me so who,
1: who gave you the sourdough and the kombucha
2: the sourdough starter was given to me by my PhD advisor and it was given to her from her friend uh I think the the lore is that it's like hundreds of years old and it's been kept alive um the kombucha starter was given to me by a family friend um and I really only started brewing that uh once I moved down to North Carolina I think it's been about maybe two years that I've been brewing my own kombucha so
1: that makes me feel warm inside
2: yeah right because
1: it's it's a it comes with a story b it's alive it's a living being I know a woman who named her starter, she calls it Fred, <laughs> and yes, she talks to the starter, and that as you gift it out, it becomes like multiple generations. It's mm-hmm. like an instant sort of family. You're mm-hmm. in the family of this particular living being.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. You,
1: they have the babies, and you know
2: they—they <laughs> they are like affected by the different air you're in too. You know, so like the starter that I gave to someone in New York is probably on its—it's it's different at this point, you know, because it's—it's surrounded by all the different microbes in New York air, and mine has probably changed when I brought it from Connecticut to Durham. So
1: microbes, yeah. uh, as a layperson, it makes what? Ooh, there's all this. Living stuff floating, and so all I can think is danger, bad, <laughs> and you're saying no, yummy, <laughs> part of life. It yeah. means the air itself, like the water, is teeming, like the soil, is teeming mm-hmm. with life. Life surrounds us, even in what we breathe in and breathe out.
2: Uh huh, yes, and it's inside of us in the form There's, of
1: gut microbes. There is something mystical and awe-inspiring about that do you feel that way or do you are you inured or immune to that kind of sense of awe
2: um so no I'm not definitely not immune I I would characterize myself as a very non-religious person and um I think sometimes that can be misinterpreted but my I feel like my religion is science. And so like I've gone, I've I've read some Carl Sagan as, you know in my life. And I, I remember this one moment I was laying in bed in graduate school. I was a grad student, kind of depressed. Times were tough. And I was reading this book. And it literally got three pages in and had to put the book down because um in biology you learn that like mitochondria are in your cells and that they're the powerhouse of the cell. And you know, the difference between single cellular organisms without mitochondria and organisms with mitochondria is very different. And so there are there are organisms, cells out there that, that actually don't have m- microbiota. There's a whole class of them. This is also not my area of expertise, but I do know that. And uh, in this book, they were talking about how at one moment, this one cell ate kind of and enveloped another cell And that actually, that cell that was engulfed became the mitochondria. And this event was so beneficial and advantageous for the survivability of the cell that it kind of, if you like look at one of those like zoomed out um, time charts, like the explosion of life that developed from this one event was magnitudes larger than the rate at which life and cells were growing before then. And every single living thing, plants, animals at this point, bugs, that every single thing of those, I'm sorry, every single cell in those animals or plants has a mitochondria in it. And it all came from that one event. And I I just remember laying in bed and just being like, we're all from that one cell and it can be traced back. And it just like blew my mind. And I feel like that kind of sensation of realization and being in awe of everything is very religious- in the sense that like you just appreciate that we're here and we're alive as humans. Like so many things have to happen to get to this point.
1: It, and for- it goes to the, um, and they've assigned a mathematical how, I have no idea. The mathematic improbability of life, which is like, let alone a single life yeah that there be life (laughs) i mean we keep looking for it across billions and billions of light years we keep looking we keep Mm -hmm. looking and yeah you think it's out there
2: um maybe but i do also think that human brains probably aren't like capable of comprehending the time scale at which this stuff happens you know what i mean like life on earth is actually probably like a lightning bolt flash in terms of the universe's age and so I, I think maybe, but maybe it existed, maybe it hasn't, maybe we are the first, but I also think that like our brains really can't comprehend that time scale. and also why? Just you know, we're here.
1: <laughs> if humanity, you know bumps itself off, then eh, mm-hmm. we'll wait around. Another billion years (laughs) for the next for the next microbe to get together.
2: Yeah, I think the the chaoticness and the uncertainty of kind of like anything goes is unsettling for some. But I've also I don't know I'm I'm I think I'm comfortable with that Uh, within the confines of being a human. You know who loves my family and friends and wants everyone to live. But you know the reality of it.
1: You have emerged as a scientist and a person from covid and extremely chaotic political world happier like you're optimistic you're moving you you're you're not embodying despair To, to what do you attribute that the ability to say okay that sucked now you know the breakup sucked the COVID sucked. The isolation sucked. But now there's this shift on planet, Diana. To to what do you attribute the shift and the, the laughter this afternoon?
2: That's a good question. Because um,
1: you could be just sitting stuck there bitching uh-huh. about things and telling some bartender how everything sucks
2: sure um so a few things I think um I think being in your 20s is a hard time and I think (laughs) you're doing a lot of things for the first time you generally are pretty naive about how the world works I'm 29 and my birthday is in August so I've got the better part of a year left before I turn 30 and I, I was just talking to my one of my best friends Kayla about this that um your 20s is kind of where you figure it all out and then I think in your 30s you're like okay wait I've like one addressed any personal traumas that I might have had growing up and I'm aware of them and you go through so much personal growth some people do uh so that when you enter your 30s you're kind of like okay like this is who I am and like these are things that I know about myself and I I can put myself first and be my, be the best version of myself. Um, I also want to brif- briefly mention that I was um, had a very tough lesson learned. Uh, I dated someone who I don't want to go into too much detail with, who was just an awful person, truly, truly awful. And I found myself, you know, giving him the benefit of the doubt and maybe thinking that I needed to adjust. I was wrong. Like this person is just truly awful, and so coming out of that, um, I really learned to trust myself and to not put myself second and respect myself, I think. And so that plus just like the reprioritization that I told you about before, plus the incredible support system that I have in my friends and family, um, I think helped me get out of the terrible politically tumultuous, you know, COVIDy dark days and wow, it was beyond like, that
1: for a scientist. It was science doesn't matter.
2: That was very tough as well, and I do think that being in a social bubble of of academia and surrounded by other scientists also um, shielded me from a lot of a lot of that. And we we the scientific community stood strong together, and you know we, we were almost kind of separated. In day-to-day lives and my social network from that kind of like, you know, hating on science and things like that. And I think critical thinking isn't taught very, it's hard to teach. And I think the juxtaposition is that like the science is really hard to explain. And I think that there, we, we do speak a different language and there are basic, basic things that we don't even need to discuss on a day-to-day basis but that what we think is basic is probably not basic to everyone and so I do think there's this push actually for um more people to work in science communication I know a few podcasts that I listen to are like breaking down science for lots of different people and I I think what's a good one um (laughs) <laughs> so i actually listen to uh andrew huberman a lot yeah some some things he says i take with a grain of salt um but well, he's... isn't he
1: trying to do some biohacks but he's got a lot he of is. science to go he's got a lot of he science is. to go with it Okay, um, how do you feel about ice baths there, Diana?
2: <laughs> ice baths activate your vagal nerve circuit, your parasympathetic nervous system. I think that um, actually a big way to deal with like panic attacks is to try to activate your parasympathetic sy- sympathetic nervous system, deep breathing, ice baths, um, and I think... Yeah, cooling yourself down is one of them, Um, and there's science behind that. And they teach that I think in cognitive behavioral therapy as well. This this way of slowing down your breathing um, to change where the oxygen is in your body to calm down. So I mean, this is the thing, right? Like there's and even even in pseudoscience, there's a little hint of truth and science to it. But I do think the wellness industry in general probably spins things out of control a bit. Um, It takes things out of context. But anyways, ice baths. Yeah. (laughs) They serve their
0: purpose. Hi, I'm Dr. Kim, the parentologist. As a wife, mom, therapist, and all-around juggler like most of you, I lead a hectic life. And sometimes that means indulging in foods on the go that my stomach doesn't always agree with. Thankfully, Pepto-Bismol provides me fast and effective relief for all kinds of upset stomachs. Having a little too many guilty pleasures at a family barbecue or birthday celebration may lead to indigestion or heartburn, so I always keep pepto on hand to get fast relief when I need it the most. Pepto-Bismol, use as directed and keep out of reach of children.
1: How do you teach empathy? Uh, the only way to combat I guess the opposite of empathy would be being a sociopath or being unfeeling or apathetic or, you know, just hard, callous toward people. Um, The only way is exposure. Um, And that is that it's very difficult to hate the person sitting across the table from you.
2: People exist in social bubbles. And I think that definitely is detrimental to... Um, in general people getting along. I think that um, what the resistance to empathy is probably having some kind of fear or anger towards a group of people that are other. And I think that um, that's a normal human response. I think a lot of these things are just natural biological responses. It's kind of the lens I view through the world, or, you know, it it makes sense if someone's acting out that they're acting out due to some kind of undealt issues in their own lives. Um, And I think that for those people who are in this kind of heightened sense of uh, defensive mode, survival mode, that it's really hard to ask for them to be empathetic and, I think we just have to like lower the the tension in the room, maybe come at people. Literally, I truly believe that we just need to come at people with kindness and to not let our own frustrations over a certain situation prevent us from being calm ourselves. And like in my position throughout the years, I've mentored students and coworkers and things like that. And I've had to manage, a handful of people up to this point in my life. And um, I was told once that in the classroom, when I was teaching, I had a a very calming commanding presence. And I think that like to remain calm and to view things through the lens of, okay, this person is having a reaction. They're upset, but like, let's just de-escalate. Like that's number one. And I think once everyone's baseline is brought down, then we can sit down and maybe have a conversation and try to, you know, again, like you said, hard to hate the person sitting in front of you. And I think as a country, everyone is just up here, like escalated um, and very upset. So, and for good reason, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on, but, um, and I think also for anxiety and fears and depression and things like that. I mean, I am also very lucky. I don't have clinically diagnosed anxiety or depression that I know of. And so some things are very much easier for me, but I have many close loved ones who struggle with anxiety and depression, and you know, a lot of unmanaged cases as well. And I see how hard it is to to struggle. They struggle and you know, emotionally are just very upset a lot. and and as their as their friend or family member, I think it's important for me to just try to de-escalate as well and try to go back to, you know, What's really going on? Is this yeah you know, yeah? So I, I try to do my best to to be that friend and family member um, to support people in my life like that, and I've I've had their favor returned to me as well. So it's just really important.
1: You live in a part of the country where uh, there are more uh, Asian people present uh,
0: mm-hmm.
1: than in the deep south. No, not in Poughkeepsie. Mm-hmm. No, got I that gr- wrong. Huh? I
2: grew up in Rosendale, New York, and. Uh-huh. In high school, there was maybe like one or two other Asian folk, and I think maybe a little bit more in college, but um i I definitely think the majority of my like influence socially was from white friends for sure
1: did, did you were you looked to as the explainer of an entire continent?
2: No, I don't think so. Um, and I would also say that, like, uh, I, one of the things that I realized I was lacking in my childhood was like a strong cultural presence outside of my mom and dad. And we lived in like a very rural area where we didn't have a lot of access to like different community centers and things like that. What did they do for a living? Um, my dad spent the majority of his life working in either like food services or janitorial services at SUNY New Paltz. and very long story, including some family drama. My mom is like a woodcarving artist and. Oh, wow. Yep. And she, she and my dad tried to do this whole business thing together and it fell apart. And then they argued about it for about 45 years in their marriage or <laughs> their entire marriage. Um,
0: <laughs> are they
2: and, still
1: married?
2: Yes, they are. <laughs>
1: Do they um, still bring it up?
2: Uh, only until like last year did we kind of try to put a stop to this constant arguing. But uh, Chinese people in general, I don't think, um, are the most emotionally mature. I'll just put that out there. Um, so <laughs> well,
1: that's, a, that's a very broad brush.
2: Immigrant country. Chinese. It's,
1: let me say something. Chinese. It's a big country, okay, Diana. <laughs> it's a, it's a big country. <laughs>
2: culturally, culturally, conflict is not dealt with in a healthy way. In that at least in my family, so as far as I've heard. But what I was trying to say is that we didn't have a lot of um, influence, I don't think. And part of the reason for me wanting to move back up closer to family is to be like the auntie for my niece and to, to be a little bit closer to my family. So we were pretty isolated. Um, so me, in terms of my actual knowledge of Chinese culture, I I actually think it's very limited. And so even if people needed explanations, I wouldn't be able to give it to them.
1: Some of the comments, even out of the Trump White House in the early days of covid, were basically blame China
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, Did you take that personally?
2: Mm, I definitely did not appreciate the tone of the messaging and well, the tone of the messaging for the entire Trump administration, but also regarding the specific, you know, hating hating on China for blank using China to scapegoat for COVID. Um, I don't think that I ever felt personally like the victim or target of any kind of hate speech. But my brother who lives in Queens mentioned uh, to me briefly that, you know, people would say to say stuff to him on the streets and things like that. Um which is tough to hear. Um, But again, I think I live in a very tight social bubble here in Durham and working at Duke that I wasn't necessarily exposed to a lot of that um, when that was going on. But um, no, I, I guess the answer to your question, I didn't take it too personally, but it definitely was upsetting to have that out in the media.
1: America has this vast misunderstanding I, certainly, I do. Of of fat, and it is to relate to it.
2: It is very um, easy to try to pick a side. I think, and I honestly think the science is very complicated. Um, the problem is that there are also these. Uh, the research sometimes in nutrition is backed by industries, right? So the dairy industry, the beef industry, the poultry industry. Everyone has their own conflict of interest um so that's that makes it tough for sure um to get yeah, a clear and message then, out
1: then there's the pure vegans and the vegetarians and the pescatarians and mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. etc yeah. yeah yeah so at cocktail parties you don't you don't mix it up with those people
2: um, no, I don't discriminate. <laughs> <Anyways>. <laughs> if anyone wants to ask me questions, yeah, I just, I'm really blunt about it. I'm like, well, you know, there are, there are vegans who eat almost everything is processed. Like they don't cook. They're just vegan. So that you know, that's, that's a pretty unhealthy diet as well. If you're just eating like vegan Kraft mac and cheese and Oreos, not great. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Do you... Speak when spoken to, or do you ever leap into the discussion?
2: Um, I usually, if people have questions, they can come to me. I don't, I don't feel like I need to preach to people in a, in a group setting or anything, but I have a lot of friends who are really interested in like exercise, fitness and working out. And, you know, we'll have candid conversations. I also think it's like really hard for one person to know everything. And, um, I will literally like sit and like look up papers on PubMed if I'm not sure. So,
1: you know. Well, let me ask another selfish question. Yeah. Um, Healthy weight loss is accomplished primarily A, at the gym, B, in the kitchen, C, at the dining table, D, in the grocery store. Hmm.
2: Mm. I would say they're all related, but probably actually at the dining table, because that's when you're choosing what to eat. Just because you go to the grocery store doesn't mean you're not ordering DoorDash four times a week,
1: (laughs) right? But if you had, if you only shopped at Whole Foods. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean you it's can possible.
2: Still, you could uh, still buy a lot of junk food at Whole Foods, that's for sure. Hmm. Very calorically dense, nutrition sparse foods, yeah.
1: If you only bought foods at a fresh, like a farmer's market.
2: You yeah, gotta be a really talented chef to sustain yourself off of a fresh farmer's market, I think.
1: Oh, once upon a time you didn't, because they yeah. would have bread and one mm-hmm place and yeah they would have green produce and then they'd also sure. have you could buy a chicken you could buy fish you could buy beef you could buy lamb you could mm-hmm. buy
2: yeah you know? i think i think what i've learned so far is um energy expenditure is actually not the key it's probably uh watching the calories that you do eat and for calor for weight loss it, it is unfortunately going to be caloric restriction but the interesting thing is that it's not that simple because your body is really, I'm learning this from the Herman Ponser's book, burn. Um, your body is amazing at this feedback loop mechanism and maintaining homeostasis. And so, um, it's you, if you are eating enough calories, you will actually probably feel full more of the, most of the time. And and then once you adjust for that, like, if, you know what I mean? Like if you're exercising more, you're actually going to eat more. And you actually not you're not going to lose a bunch of weight just by exercising if you do the math. Um, and so, healthy weight loss in general, I think, is probably increasing the quality of your foods and nutrients intake. And then, um, if you are at a weight where you can afford to lose a few pounds, it's going to be calorie restriction. Yeah. But I have I'm only like two thirds of the way through the book right now, so we'll see if my mind changes at the end.
1: Um, If we got struck by lightning today, and the only thing that survived was this recording, what is your legacy?
2: My legacy is, is hopefully, you know, the people around me, people who know me, and something that I can, you know, spread on to others by being a potential role model is like, I choose to love well, and I choose to be my
1: truest and best self. And
2: I hope that everyone else does the same
1: that's what's important i think you're there i think you're getting there i think you (laughs) Um, made huge strides
2: (laughs) my my girl gang and i uh like to say that we're trending up all the time you know and trending right like you can have some some low days as well but as long as we're always trending up and we're here to support each other that's what's important so yeah
1: (laughs) diana dr lee thank you for making time absolutely So, Diana Lee is moving from Durham back to upstate New York, and she sounds very happy about it, even though my kids and their volleyball teammates are going to miss her terribly because she's a wonderful person, just a wonderful person and a wonderful teammate, does very well in doing something called setting up the ball, where you just like set it up for somebody else to spike and uh, so they'll miss her as a teammate, but more than that, they'll miss her as a friend, and I'm delighted she took the time to talk to us. Thank you, Diana.
0: In Her Words is a production of the Queen City Podcast Network in cooperation with Balto Creative Media. Alison Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp-Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening. One word, no spaces. A small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women.
1: A huge shout out and thank you to everyone who has supported manlistening.com, In Her Words, the podcast, and now voicelocket.com. Hope you'll stop by and check all of that out. Thanks so very much.
0: Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much.